is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. Welcome to Catholic Review Radio. This is Chris Gunty of the Catholic Review, and today our guest is Wadeen Koenig-Bricker, who is a journalist who's written extensively about spirituality and family for magazines and most major Catholic publications, including Our Sunday Visitor and others. She's a former editor of Catholic Parent magazine and author of several books, including 365 Mary, 365 Saints, and Asking God for the Gifts He Wants to Give You. We are going to talk with Wadeen today about her new book, Dinner Party with the Saints, which is absolutely unusual and, and fascinating so far. Wadeen, this is not a typical biography of the saints, is it? No, not at all. I've always felt that the saints have had a little bit of short shrift in that they've either been so overpietized that they cease to be people. You know, they just become these icons of holiness that, you know, no one could ever achieve and, and every drop of personality is, is taken away from them. And essentially what they all say is, this was an amazingly wonderful person who did good things and then they died. Maybe they died because, you know, they were killed or whatever, but, you know, pretty much that's what it is. Or else people go to the other extreme and they just do a biography of them and they fail to incorporate any of their spirituality in them. And so there's not a whole lot. And in the Catholic Church in particular, you know, we tend toward the hagiography. And then we start getting all this mythological stuff that comes in and, and you know, just stuff that just isn't true. And in the course of that, the saint him or himself or herself really gets lost. And these were real people. Right, right. I mean, that's, I think, the appeal for us is that these are real people and we are real people like them. We if we strive to do what they have done, we can be saints too. And so I think that's always been a tough thing. And then, like you say, sometimes, you know, people write about, oh, Mother Teresa had this dark night of the soul and there were times when she didn't believe. So she must not have been holy. And it's like, well, no, it's, it's a struggle. You know, we're all human and we're all striving toward this holiness. So it's, it's tough to have one or the other. You've got to have both. It's, it's got to go together with that. When you looked at this, though, you've taken some of this and fictionalized some of their exchanges and accounts with uh, other folks in heaven. But then you added an element that I don't think other people would have thought of, and that's dinner recipes. So <laughs> tell us a little bit. Where did that inspiration come from? You know, I'm not 100% sure, other than maybe it was a divine nudge. But I, I was thinking one day, what would happen you know, in heaven, you know, do people eat in heaven? Because a lot of the saints really like to eat. And, you know, eating is a great pleasure. And, I and a lot of times we'll have a dish and we'll say, oh, that was heavenly. Well. Exactly. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I mean, I understand. I know what all the theology is. But I thought, well, what would happen if the saints all got together or a group of saints got together and had a potluck? 
dinner party? What would happen? And then I just began to start to think about that. I thought who would come and, you know, that they would be waiting for the guest of honor. And, and then I thought, well, what I really would like to do is, you know, I was going to use this as a theme, um, kind of the reason they were gathering together. Then I, in the book, there's a fictionalized account of these, of the saints coming together and each chapter focuses on one saint, but they're having conversations and they're doing things with, with their fellows, with other saints in the book. And then I said, I wanted to include two things. One is I wanted to include a biography, a, a real biography, not a, mm. not a, you know, a pietized hagiography, but a real biography of when they lived and what they did. And then I thought, you know, people don't have any contextual understanding of what was happening at the time of the saints. We just kind of lump them all together, just like we do all of history. We just sort of shove everybody in the past. And I thought, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't know, you know, people don't realize that they don't think, they don't make the connection unless they're a historian that Francis of Assisi lived at the time of the Crusades and actually went to the Holy Land to try and con convert the Sultan. So all of a sudden you're thinking Crusades, Crusaders, Francis of Assisi, the hippie in the, in the woods, you know, so it's like, oh, okay. Or, you know, you don't, you don't think that certain saints were with each other, you know, that, right. that they were contemporaneous, you know, somehow we just get them all, all mixed up. And then we don't have any kind of historical context to put them in. Right. I, I noticed on you, you know, you have kind of like a little, did you know about the saints? And for Peter, you said the great pyramids of Egypt existed 3000 years before Peter. Exactly. You know, so Peter would have been a tourist at the great pyramids. I mean, you know, I mean, they were, they were already ancient and not in use. And, you know, so, you know, to think about that or, or um, there's only about 50 years that separate, which is, you know, nothing in historical terms that separate Cleopatra from Jesus. I mean, so we're talking people, you know, people kind of go, oh, that doesn't, you know, my head, you know, I think Cleopatra lived, I don't know when people think she lived, but. Mm -hmm. And then um, as I was doing all the research, I discovered a lot of things about food that the saints, <laughs> the saints spent a lot of time either not eating or eating or whatever. And so I was reading, doing this book and my friend Cecilia Murphy, is a trained cook. She tells me you can't use the word chef because that's a very special designation, but she is the absolute most amazing cook you have ever made. I mean, she's, she's professionally trained and absolutely wonderful. And I said, you know, would you kind of help me with this? Kind of, you know, give me some idea of what might be some good recipes. And she said, well, can I make some recipes? And I, you know, being no fool, said, of course, please. So, so she began to create recipes. I would give her, I'd say, okay, this is what the saint would have had to work with. This is what, what foods they would have had available to them. And what can you do with this to make a recipe that, that people could create now and kind of have an idea of what the saint, you know, something similar to what the saint would have eaten or something that's really reminiscent of what the saint was was uh, all about. And, and some of them are kind of um, not what you'd expect at all. Um, Francis of Assisi, on his deathbed, asked for marzipan almond cookies. So there are, that's what he wanted his last meal to be was marzipan almond cookies. Now, do you think of that as Francis of Assisi wanting, you know, a little sweet treat? Well, he did. And he had his, his best friend who was a woman named Lady Jacopa, who was 
written out of the history books because Francis of Assisi wasn't supposed to have a best friend who was a woman, you know, that was not good. And, but she showed up at his deathbed and was there when he died with marzipan cookies. So we have a recipe in there for marzipan cookies. I want to talk to you a little bit about St. Martha, St. Martha of Bethany. Uh, yes. She kind of is woven throughout the book as this kind of stern kitchen mistress who doesn't want anybody messing around with, with her kitchen. We all remember her from the story where Jesus visited and she busied herself with uh, taking care of the hospitality and, and the house. And Mary uh, sits at Jesus' feet and soaks up the teachings. Their brother Lazarus is the one that Jesus raised from the dead. And I always have thought that Martha kind of gets a bad rap for having been the one who was concentrating on making sure Jesus was welcome and that things were clean and that dishes were put out and, and there was enough to eat. And so it's interesting to see you kind of weaving her into everything here that those skills, those gifts that she had are incredibly important. And in fact, just today, as we're talking, um, the Vatican announced that, that Martha and Mary and Lazarus have been declared doctors of the church. What is it about Martha of Bethany that makes her so special? Well, a couple of things. One is that she's one of a handful, I mean, literally just a handful of people that we really know anything about that knew Jesus. I mean, we have names, but we don't know anything particularly about them. And Martha has always intrigued me because if you read the scriptures carefully, it was Martha's house that Jesus came to. So she was it wasn't just she was the mistress of the house in, in that maybe she had a husband or that it was Lazarus house and she was keeping house. She was in charge. It was her house. And so it kind of made sense that if people, you know, all these people are coming into her house that she would like a little help. You know, it's like, okay, guys, there you are. You're sitting in my courtyard ready to eat my dinner. Could somebody come and help me a little yeah. bit here? This is my place and I'm providing the food. And right. could we get a little help? I'd like to talk to Jesus too. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this He's a great guy. I'd like a little time with him myself. I thought that in this book, I thought that Martha would be a wonderful way to keep reminding us of, of the humanity of Jesus, to keep bringing us back to somebody who knew him, who's doing a very, very ordinary thing, uh, who is, who's doing the most ordinary thing of all cooking. And, and she gave me the opportunity to let her interact with a lot of different people. One of the favorite things that I have is near the end of the book, and I, this is not giving away any of the plot line, but you know, she doesn't want to come out of the kitchen. She's like, I'm fine. You know, I mean, my, my feet hurt. And then she, at one point she says, I didn't know feet could hurt in heaven. You know, and she just want to kind of, she just wants to kind of be there. And Teresa of Avila, who was actually a fashionista in her day, she was a fond of fashion magazines and like beautiful clothes and things before she became the Teresa of Avila we knew, comes in and arranges Martha's scarf in this very fashionable manner and said, you know, you look beautiful, Martha, you have to come out now. And Martha says, well, where did you learn to do that? And she goes, I've always loved fashion, so come on. And, you know, and, and then she, she brings Martha out with her, you know, scarf and her everything all arranged so that she comes out of the kitchen just looking really gorgeous. And I thought that's a nice way of kind of playing off the fact that, you know, we all have our skills and our abilities and that Martha has this, this, this wonderful gift of being able to do things in the kitchen and be prepared for everything. But we have to look beyond that, just like Teresa of Avila saw beyond that and saw the beautiful woman who needed to have her scarf arranged and come out. 
That's awesome. Well, after the break, I want to talk some more, and I want to talk a little bit about St. Martin de Porres and uh, some of the other folks who are in this book. We are talking with Wadeen Koenig-Bricker about her new book, Dinner Party with the Saints from Paraclete Press, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Archdiocese of Baltimore makes the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org accountability. Catholic news from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. The coronavirus pandemic has not deterred the construction of Mother Mary Lang Catholic School, the first new Catholic school to be built in Baltimore City in almost 60 years. Ground was broken October 23, 2019 on a site just west of Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Alicia Jordan was hired as principal of the school in July of 2020 and will have more than 500 students when it opens for the 2021-22 school year. The Archdiocese of Baltimore anticipates taking possession of the school building from the Whiting-Turner Construction Company in February, more than three months before its anticipated delivery. Interior work continues on the 65,000-square-foot school, which will feature Wi-Fi, student Chromebooks, and will be Google Classroom compatible. It has a media center with audiovisual production, makerspace and robotics programs, a full-size gymnasium with a stage, an artificial turf athletic field, and playground equipment. Holy Angels Catholic School and St. James and John Catholic School will send their students to the new school. For more on this story and view the most recent construction photos of the school, visit catholicreview.org. During a February 1st meeting with representatives of Catholic News Service, Pope Francis celebrated the news service's 100th anniversary. Asked about the role of U.S. Catholic journalists today, Pope Francis said it is to promote unity and to try to get people to talk to each other, reason together, and seek the path of fraternity. Quote, a divided church is not the church, the Pope said. Quote, the church in the United States is a church that has been courageous, the history it has and the saints, and has done so much, the Pope said. But if the communications media throws gas on the fire on one side or another, it doesn't help, end quote. The path of division leads nowhere, the Pope said. Pope Francis said that when he met with newspaper associations in Buenos Aires and Argentina years ago, he told them to be aware of four sins and that those sins are still a threat to news media today. Disinformation, or giving only part of the story, because the nuances of the whole story are essential for discovering truth. Calumny, which is a grave sin, ruining the reputation of another with a lie, defamation, which is similar but often involves publishing something from someone's past, even though it changed their lives, and what he describes as, quote, a love of dirt, end quote, because scandal sells. Quote, don't fall into these sins, end quote, the Pope said. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm Kevin Parks. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio.
to Catholic Review Radio. We are talking today with Wadeen Koenig-Bricker, who is the author of the new book, Dinner Party with the Saints, which will be out from Paraclete Press February 16th. Wadeen, I want to talk to you a little bit about St. Martin de Porres. I, I love the chapter about him, that fictional part, and he's got a, an exchange with Raphael and animals and things like that. But how did you come up with that? And, and why is Martin so integral to what's going on here? Well, one of the things that I really wanted to do in this book was I wanted to make sure that there was a there was gender diversity. So we had men and women. I wanted to make sure that we had era diversity. So it covers all the eras of Christianity. And I wanted to make sure that we had um, certainly had racial diversity. And Martin de Porres was um, a biracial. He was father was Spanish and his mother was probably a black Indian mix. So, you know, he, he was he was a multiracial individual. But the thing that I liked about him, you know, we know the stories about him, about how, you know, he cured everyone. But what fascinated me the most about him as I was had researched him years ago, was that he had this profound love for animals. Well, we know this, that we know he had a love for animals. But he used to go on to, into the streets of Lima and find, you know, if there'd be an injured or sick dog or cat, you know, along the way. He gathered them up and he'd take them off to his sister's house, who I think should have also been nominated as for sainthood because of this. Take them off to his sister's house in the, in the country and leave them there for her to take care of and bring them back to health. And if they were too sick, he would use his healing powers to heal them. So he kind of like ran the first humane society in the entire world to cure sick dogs and cats. And he would get alms to take care of his sick dogs and cats as well as people. And what I thought was, we are in a time when, when the interconnectedness of the earth is, is becoming really apparent to all of us and how all beings, all life has, has an interconnectedness to us that, that, that animal life is not, we no longer really see animal life as completely separate from us. I mean, it is in a, in a spiritual sense and all of that, but we don't approve, let's say, of, of people who go slaughter animals just for the thrill of slaughtering animals. You know, that used to be a, you know, no one gave it another thought, but now we begin to realize that, you know, there's, that these are God's creatures as well. And I thought that Martin really exemplified that idea that, the creatures, God's creatures need to be cared for as well. And in this chapter, that chapter, it, it uh, features the, the rainbow, rainbow bridge where animals pass over and wait for their owners. And I'll have to admit that when I reread it in the galleys, I even cried. <laughs> yeah, it gave me goosebumps. It, it certainly gave me goosebumps. You know, because we, we think of San Francis of Assisi in terms of, of animals. But I guess I hadn't thought of Saint Martin de Porres, Saint Martin de Porres, in that way as well. So that's it's a it's a neat thing to now have that little nugget about him that I didn't know before. And he was much more involved with domestic animals. Francis of Assisi was, uh, whom I you know have great admiration for, but he you know wolves and birds and things. But Martin did dogs and cats and things. <laughs> I mean he did the, he did the domestic animals. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, sculptures that I've ever seen is outside of St. Joseph Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona, right outside the emergency room. And it shows St. Joseph and a young, very young Jesus, maybe six or seven years old, and a dog, you know, yes. like a, and, and not that, you know, they would have had a family pet. We certainly don't see that in the, in scripture at all, you know, that Jesus called Rover over and said, you know, uh, let's go for a walk. But the idea was that in those days, there probably would have been village dogs, you know, the domesticated animals, but who just kind of wandered through the village and, and 
didn't necessarily belong to any one family. But here was this family unit, Joseph, Jesus, and the and the dog. And it just made it all seem so much more real than just, you know, the holy family, you know, with halos and all that. So uh, it's kind of nice to think of of our saints interacting with animals like that. In scripture, there's only one reference to a domesticated pet, and that's in uh, Tobit. It says the dog went out merrily before them. And so there's clearly a pet dog in that. But if you know anything about the, well, let me back up a little. I'm getting, I'm getting an advanced degree in Egyptology. So I was spending a lot of time spending, learning about the customs of, the, of, the, of that area and all. People had dogs. Dogs were domesticated way, way, way early. So the likelihood that Mary and Jesus and Joseph had a dog is probably really, really good because they would have had a dog to guard the door. They would have had a dog to, they, they would have had a dog. Cats are a little more problematic, but then no one owns a cat anyway. That's true. <laughs> Other way around. We're just staff for cats, you know, so that's... We're just... Exactly. I want to talk to you a little bit about a little odd part of the book, um, and I don't want to give too much away about the recipe, but you talk a little bit about locusts <laughs> and uh, with St. John the Baptist and, and his locusts. Now, when I was in the Holy Land uh, probably about 10 years ago or so, our guide actually showed us there were some like little uh, pods hanging from a tree. They had kind of a cocoa-y smell to them. And he said, this may have been the locusts that the scripture refers to when John ate locusts and wild honey. Because as the wind blows and they would uh, rub against each other, they sounded like crickets. And so it's like, okay, well, but he probably could have gotten protein from locusts. Why include that in a feast? Well, because I think it's one of the things that, that people know and remember about uh, John the Baptist. And I wanted some humor in it. Yes. I wanted, I wanted to have, you know, I wanted a little bit of levity in it. And, 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 you know, the idea that John the Baptist is bringing, you know, locusts to the, to the fest, you know, potluck and, and trying the feast to, uh, you know, just uh, gave much opportunity for, you know, little bits of, of humor about it. And I did research it. And, you know, I, I, I do know about the, the pods of the tree, but, if he's living in the desert and he's looking for a source of fairly readily available protein, the locust pods only grow, you know, seasonally, but there are locusts out there all the time. And so my thought is he probably ate the bugs because pound for pound, they have more protein than anything else. So it, it doesn't thought, sound particularly attractive to me. I think if St. John the Baptist was going to come to my party, I'd rather he bring a, a pumpkin pie or something like that. But okay, I, I get where that's I did, coming. I did, I did try. I did try grasshoppers in antisense for this to see what it's like. And uh, I tried fried grasshoppers. And they taste a little bit like, to me, a little bit like popcorn. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> They do, a little bit like popcorn. <laughs> so you have written extensively about saints. You've got 365 saints. You've got 365 days with Mary. You've got all sorts of things that you've written about saints. What is it about the saints that really makes this so this line of study and this line of work so attractive? I'm a historian at heart. You know, I think I've missed my calling. I should have been an academician. And it always, from the time I was very little, I would read the lives of the saints and I'd think, 
well, that doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> you know? And so the, the academician historian in me always wanted to know, well, what was the real story? Not to discredit the saint, not to make the saint be less than, but to say, what were they really like? And the more I've read about saints and the more I've learned about saints, the more I realize that we are called, we, and, and this might be a little controversial, but I don't think we are called to emulate the saints at all because the saints have to live their own life and to emulate means to live like. And we're not to live like them at all because they lived in a particular time and place and with particular people in particular. What we are to do is to draw inspiration from them. And then we are to make our own lives into a, a model of sainthood. And we're to use we're to use them as uh, examples, but not in the sense that we're going to be like them in their lives. Not templates, not templates per se. And so the more you find out about the more I found out about what the what the saints were really like, the more I began to realize, you know, I can do this and you can do this. We all can do this. We can be saints because we are called to live a particular life at a particular time in a particular manner. And that's where we become saints. And that would lead us to the great feast in heaven, which you wrote about in the book, Dinner Party with the Saints. It's just a great little adventure. I encourage you to pick it up. You can get Woodine Koenig Bricker's new book, Dinner Party with the Saints from Paraclete Press dot com that's p-a-r-a-c-l-e-t-e press.com the book will be available february 16th you can pre-order it of course and of course as with anything these days you can get it on amazon thank you so much for being with us today Woodine. this has been a great uh little conversation about the book and we look forward to seeing more and maybe trying some of these recipes thank you thank you so much this is Chris Gunty, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love. <laughs>